It's that time of year again. There's a nip in the air, the holidays are in full swing, and you are halfway through another academic year. And that means Absite 2022 is right around the corner. Fear not, Behind the Knife has got you covered. We've got over 28 high-yield Absite review episodes and our trusty companion book available on Amazon. Everything you need to dominate the Absite. Don't forget to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org where you can easily access all of our podcasts and videos, register for free CME, and sign up for the BTK newsletter. And be sure to keep an eye out for our comprehensive oral board review material, which is due out in early 2022. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Behind the Knife, please leave us a five-star review. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this. All right. So today we're going to be doing a pediatric surgery review. Uh, it should be pretty brief. It's a, a, a pediatric surgery is kind of a daunting topic, but when you look at it with regard to the ab side, it's only about 2% on the exam. So that should be telling you about how much time you should be spending on it. There's some big key things that we need to cover because um, a lot of the, um, uh, it's a lot of the same stuff that shows up on the test every year. So these are pretty high yield. Uh, so let's get right into it. Let's start with uh, trauma. So John, what's the number one cause of death in children's one to 20 years old? So the number one cause of death is uh, is trauma. Although I'm curious what the uh, opioid overdoses have done recently on that. Uh, yeah, those uh, those kids out there on opioids. Um, uh, kind of sad. Yeah, number one cause of death in children: trauma. Okay, with regard to trauma in children, uh, let's talk about shock. So, uh, John, uh, walk us through. What's the uh, tell us about shock in kids? What's the best indicator of shock? Um, and what are some key things we need to know when looking at a, a kid in shock? So when you're looking at a kid in shock, it, it's kind of a, a well-known thing that kids actually look really, really well until they decompensate very quickly. So your best indication of shock in a, a pediatric population is tachycardia. Um, yeah, so tach tachycardia is the best indicator of shock. It's going to be late when they drop their pressure. So they look well until they don't. Um, so typically they look very well, decompensate quickly. Uh, you'd have a you'd have a heart rates and for like if you want to look at actual heart rates for a lot of different types of um, you know pediatric populations. So a neonatal and a patient in shock would be a heart rate greater than one fifty. Anyone less than one years old, anything greater than one twenty, and in all other pediatric populations up until you know their teenage years, anything greater than hundred. Perfect. That's a general rule of thumb. That was exactly what I was leading into. We say tachycardia, but you have to know what the different parameters are for kids to know if it's in fact tachycardia. In a neonate, 150, that's normal. Um, let's talk about fluid resuscitation. So targets for fluid resuscitation. Uh, what's the, this sometimes shows up, you know, what's the rate for a bolus of fluid for a bolus or for given, uh, uh, blood? Um, how do you calculate that? So for, for a, for a bolus of crystalloid fluid, uh, is 20 cc's a kilogram. Uh, and the easiest way I remember that for blood is you take that number and half that. So a, a blood bolus or a blood dosing would be 10 cc's a kilogram. And typically, if you're getting asked to send a question, you give this after about two fluid bolus in a patient who is hypotensive. Okay, what's your target for fluid resuscitation as far as urine output in kids? So urine output in uh, a neonatal infant population is two to three uh, cc's a kilogram an hour. And uh, in toddlers and everybody older than that, it's closer to adults, which is one cc's a kilogram an hour. 
great. So that stuff will kind of show up. The other thing that shows up is calculating maintenance IV fluids. And if you're not f- familiar with it, you should look up the 421 rule. I think most people are, are pretty familiar with that from, from medical school and, and internship. Um, but it, let's stay on the topic of trauma in pediatrics. Uh, sometimes you'll get asked uh, how to choose uh, an endotracheal tube in children under 10. Uh, John, finish up the trauma for us. What are some general rules of thumb there for endotracheal tubes in children less than 10? Yeah, I think the one, the biggest thing to know the difference nowadays is that with children less than 10 years old, there used to be an indication for an uncuffed tube. Now we're putting cuff tubes into the low pressure of the actual endotracheal tube uh, uh, balloon. So now we're doing cuff tubes and everybody and all children except for neonates who still get an uncuffed tube. And typically you want to do, the, there's an equation for the size of the ET tube, but you can also use the pinky finger uh, um, or the size of the, the nasal passage as well. That's kind of a, a fast roll. But the equation is uh, the number four plus the age divided by uh, divided by four. Okay, four plus age divided by four or the size of the pinky. Uh, perfect. And if, you know, you can also get out those in, in real life, get out those Breslau tapes uh, to help uh, guide the sizing of these various things. Okay, moving on from trauma, let's get into emesis in kids. Emesis is another thing that shows up very frequently on the app side, having to know uh, differentials based on age versus bilious versus non-bilious. So, uh, Meg, let's go through a differential by age for emesis. We're talking about neonates infants, you know, toddlers, and then adolescents. What's on your differential for emesis in those different age groups? So when we're talking about emesis, it's always important to remember that not every um, emesis in these children is surgical. So thinking about the non-surgical issues in in neonates, it could be infectious, it could be allergic reactions, it could be a metabolic disorder. But um, surgically, there's a lot of issues in the neonates. They can have GERD, which might require a uh, fund application, pyloric stenosis, or intestinal obstruction, or an atresia anywhere along the esophagus or intestinal tract. Um, in infants and toddlers, um, again, they can have gastroparesis, infectious etiologies, or even neurologic and psychologic issues. Um, but surgically, the common um, findings are intussusception or volvulus. And then finally, in adolescence, um, they can have functional um, intestinal disorders. They can have IBD. Again, they can have psychogenic um, causes for emesis. And then surgically, um, the most common cause of emesis in adolescence is appendicitis. Yeah, so you can kind of you can kind of narrow your differential just based on the age. So either in, in the question stem or you know in real life when you're looking at a patient, you look at how old they are, and that can kind of help you narrow your differential based on what the most common causes for emesis are. Now let's talk about bilious versus non-bilious. This is another key distinction that can help you kind of figure out what's going on. So Meg, let's first talk about non-bilious emesis. So what's on your differential for a child with non-bilious emesis? So the first thing I'm going to think about is pyloric stenosis. I think it's the most common one we find. Um, and then a little less commonly are um, tracheoesophageal fistulas and intussusception. Okay, so let's let's tackle that first one uh, that you mentioned, pyloric steno- stenosis. Uh, what's you know what's going to be uh, in the question stem? What are some buzzwords for pyloric stenosis? Yeah, so this is the one where it's usually a, a younger um, infant or toddler that comes in pro- with projectile vomiting. Um, and then sometimes they might describe that you can feel a palpable, maybe olive-shaped um, mass in the abdomen. Um, and this patient usually looks uh, a bit dehydrated, maybe a little bit tachycardic as well. Yeah, and along those lines, that dehydration, there's a there's a 
very characteristic metabolic disturbance that you see in children with pyloric stenosis. Um, and sometimes this is the question on the test. You know, what, are, what, what kind of metabolic disturbance are, are they likely to have? They give you a classic patient with, with um, pyloric stenosis. So what is that, Meg? Yeah, so it's the same with anyone who has emesis for a prolonged period of time. You're going to get a hypochloremic, hypokalemic, metabolic alkalosis, and you'll also get a paradoxic aciduria. And what's, what's driving that paradoxic aciduria? So I think it's because you're um, losing the potassium, so your kidneys are trying to retain it, and so instead um, it's excreting the hydrogen ions. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so diagnosis. So ultrasound, there's a, a cutoff for diagnosing pyloric stenosis. What is that? So I like to remember the fours similar to that equation for ET tubes. There's a lot of fours in children. So um, pylorus being more than four millimeters thick and um, being more than 14 millimeters long is diagnostic. Yeah, right. The, the one I remember, I remember a little bit differently in choose which one works for you. But I, I remember pi, for like pyloric stenosis, pi equal 3.14. So greater than three, you know, I think the technical thing is four, but greater than three millimeters thick or 14 millimeters long. Um, what do you do with these patients uh, as far as treatment? So this is one where you can get tripped up. The, the first thing is always resuscitation because like we said, there's a metabolic disturbance. These kids need to be resuscitated first, um, which is uh, crystalloids, normal saline. Um, and then if you're switching over to maintenance IV fluids, it's always important to remember that pediat pediatric patients need some glucose, some dextrose in their maintenance fluids. And then, um, and then you can proceed to the OR once they're resuscitated. Right. And it's important to say you resuscitate first with normal saline. So you wait to add, you know, potassium until you have return of urine output. So um, I've seen that question on the test. I'll ask you, what fluid do you want to resuscitate this kid with pyloric stenosis? And the, the choice, the, the first thing is normal saline. Um, and then what's the procedure in the OR? You're going to do a pyloromyotomy. Okay. Uh, so... Um, Let's move on to the, the next uh, thing that can cause non-bilious emesis, and this is a big topic, so we'll go over to John for this one. So, John, uh, tracheoesophageal fistula. Um, there's five different types. Uh, what are the ones that we need to know? So the two types that you need to know are mainly where you're going to be tested on is type C and type A. So type C is the most common. Almost 90% of patients who have a tracheoesophageal fistula will have this type. Uh, it is a blind ending esophageal atresia. So your esophagus stops and then you have a distal uh, tracheoesophageal fistula. Type A uh, is the next most common at about 8%. Uh, and this is actually the only one without a tracheoesophageal fistula. It's just esophageal atresia on the other side. So there's no connection to the trachea whatsoever. Okay. So John, how do you um, how do you make the diagnosis? Uh, so in kids, we'll do a abdominal X-ray. Uh, so the distinguish distinguishing factors between the two types. So type C, um, you'll have gas present uh, within the abdomen with a distended stomach because you do have that uh, you do have that uh, distal fistula. Whereas type A, you have a gasless uh, abdomen. Okay, and what else do you have to look for when you when you see a patient uh, with TE fistula? They'll ask you for some associated anomalies. What are you looking for? Yeah, so this is where you need to remember your Vactryl uh, workup as well. And the components of the Vactryl syndrome 
uh, include your vertebral anomalies, which you can diagnose with a sacral ultrasound. So A stands for your anal rectal abnormalities, uh, most commonly an imperfect anus, and you diagnose with, diagnose with the exam. Uh, cardiac is your C, and you can diagnose with the echocardiogram. T stands for your TE fistula, which I already talked about. R is your renal uh, issues, and you can uh, diagnose this with a renal ultrasound. And then L stands for your limb abnormalities, which will be a president on physical exam. Great. Yeah. So they'll ask you the, for those associated, you know, uh, disorders and, you know, a big important one there is the cardiac. So, um, I, I've seen it asked before where you, know, you have a, a person with T fistula and they ask you what the next step is and you need to rule out any cardiac abnormalities that need to be, um, uh, corrected, um, prior to taking this patient to the operating room, uh, for repair of their T fistula. So that's a, a very important one to remember. Uh, treatment. Uh, so you want to resuscitate them like all patients, and you can place a repogal tube, which is a uh, double lumen tube to suction out the saliva and also keep the esophagus patent. Uh, you can also uh, place a G-tube for uh, decompression distally. Uh, and then obviously the repair is, you know, the coach says surgery, so we need to do a, the repair you're going to have to select is usually a right extrapleural thoracotomy. Okay, great. Uh, common complications for, for that uh uh, for that procedure. Um, you have the thick stricture fistula as your most type of common complications. And also, you know, later down the line is reflux disease. Yeah. So you think about, you know, an esophagectomy essentially. So you, you can stricture there. Um, uh, you can form a fistula. You can have a leak, which is, is can be pretty devastating. But long-term, as you say, a GERD is, is a very common uh, complication. Okay, so Meg, back to you. Uh, we're talking about now intussusception, which uh, can be a source of either bilious or non-bilious uh, vomiting. Um, obviously, if you're obstructed from your intussusception, you can have a small bowel obstruction, have bilious emesis. Uh, but what are going to be the buzzwords you see on the test for intussusception in a child? So the one term that I basically always associate with intussusception is the current jelly stools. And then um, the one other is uh, if you're given um, imaging that they talk about the target sign, which is the, the bowel inside of the bowel. Or, so you see two concentric circles. Great. What causes intussusception in children? So the uh, number one cause is after a viral illness. That's going to be the common presentation that the child comes in after a viral illness and like a URI and, um, and then they have this abdominal pain or emesis and it's due to the inflamed pyrus patches as a lead point. Um, the second most common is a lymphoma and the third most common is a Meckel's diverticulum. Perfect. So I think the point there being that most common it's in, in children, it's a, a viral, you know, illness and inflamed pyrus patches, and it's a benign etiology. So you can get away with treating it non-operatively, which we'll get into here in a second, versus adult, where if you have an a true intussusception, not just an incidental small bowel intussusception seen on CT scan, a true intussusception, um, it's it's more common that that's from, you know, potentially a mass. And so those adult patients are treated differently than children. Uh, you mentioned that the diagnosis is by ultrasound. Uh, what's the treatment for intussusception in a child? So in the child, the treatment is an air contrast enema. Okay. Uh, so you do that and it recurs. What do you want to do next? Another air contrast enema. Okay. And it recurs. And uh, what do you want to do next? 
So I forget what the threshold is, but the answer is usually, again, to try an air contrast enema. But if you're unable to reduce it, um, then that's when you have to go to operation um, or um, typical reasons to go to the OR, like peritonitis, or if they are obstructed and it is bilious emesis. Perfect. I think you'll see some old, you know, some uh, kind of old dogma that if they, you know, they fail twice, then they go to the OR. But in reality, as long as they're stable and they respond to the air contrast enema, you can keep doing it. Um, if you're unable to reduce it with the air contrast enema or they uh, are uh, demonstrate signs of a threatened bowel or peritonitis, then that needs to go to the OR. Uh, the one thing I, I've seen come up before is if when you do reduce it, say they are in the emergency room and they reduce it, how long do they have to stay uh, in the hospital? Can they be observed in the in the emergency room or do they need to be admitted overnight? Does they, anyone know the answer to that? They have to be observed, I believe, for four hours. And I think also you do, uh, um, you give them some food and test how they're doing. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure at that. I doubt that that would throw. I've never seen anything like that in the on the app site. So I'd be surprised if something like that, something like that, where there's probably a, quite a bit of variability in in practice. Um, okay, but and we already mentioned uh, again in adults into susception more likely from a malignancy. So those patients need to go to the OR. Don't air contrast an adult with an with an interception. Uh, okay, moving on. We've talked about some causes of non-bilious emesis. Um, now let's move on to uh, differential for bilious emesis. This is a favorite of the app site. So, John, uh, differential for a bilious emesis. So, I'd be looking, immediately my mind goes to malrotation with some type of mid-gut volvulus. But I also need to be considering duodenotresia and meconium ileus as, as, ob as reasons for it. Okay, so again, we'll, let's come back. Let's tackle that first one, malrotation with mid-gut volvulus. Um, what's the typical etiology of this? So it's a failure of the normal 270-degree uh, rotation during intestinal development. So the bowel just does not rotate as it comes back into the abdomen. Uh, and the volvulus portion is actually caused by the LADS bands, which are adhesions to the right retroperitoneum. Okay, and when does this typically, so let's say you have malrotation. Um, uh, what, at what age group do these, these uh, present with volvulus? Almost all of them, 90% or so, present within the first year of life. Okay, perfect. You do see it. I mean, I've seen it in adults. So occasionally you'll see it in, in, in an adult that uh, somebody in their 20s or 30s will throw, show up with some problems and they have a malrotation and volvulus. Um, what are some... Uh, uh, or how do you how do you diagnose a malrotation? So for pretty much all the bilious vomiting uh, diagnosis, the first step you always do and should be like almost a go-to answer is your an emergent upper GI, uh, and then you, on this upper GI you'll see that the duo does not cross the midline. Perfect. Uh, associated uh, syndromes. They, you know, testing loves associated syndromes with these uh, with these childhood disorders. So, what are some associated syndromes with malrotation? Uh, so, I definitely seen that congenital diaphragmatic hernias uh, can be present up to twenty percent of these patients, and it's also associated, I think, with uh, omphalocele more so than gastroschisis. Perfect. Uh, treatment. The treatment uh, is you know, resect the LADS bands, uh, counterclockwise the torsion. So you want to take the intestine uh, back to where it belongs and place the small intestine. And so your final anatomy would be a small intestine on the right side of the abdomen and a large intestine on the left side of the abdomen. 
And the last thing you want to do to avoid any diagnostic dilemma in the future is perform an appendectomy. Right. So resect those lad bands, counterclockwise detorsion, counterclockwise. You want to turn back time, counterclockwise detorsion, place a small intestine on the right, large intestine on the left, appendectomy. Perfect. That's your lad's procedure. Uh, okay, so Meg, uh, uh, let's move on to our second cause of bilious emesis, and that's duodenal atresia. Uh, buzzwords for duodenal atresia. So this is something that you should uh, Google search the image of it because it could be an x-ray finding that they show, but it's the double bubble sign. You see two gas bubbles. One is the stomach and one's the duodenum. Perfect. And I would encourage everybody, so uh, all these common kind of radiographic findings, Google image them. So go to Google, go to Google images, type it in. Uh, a lot of times the one that shows up on the test is the first image that shows up on your Google image search. So know what that looks like. Um, uh, so uh, it's important to know that this is the number one call, cause of duodenal obstruction in neonates. Um, and let's come back to some associated uh, abnormalities with duodenal atresia. Meg, take it. So polyhydramnios is one because the fetus is not swallowing the amniotic fluid. Um, and then they can have cardiac, renal, GI anomalies. Um, and then one of the big associations is Down syndrome. Um, about 20% of these patients have Downs. Right. Um, and I've seen that question asked as straightforward as that, is uh, what's, what is associated with Down syndrome. Um, okay. Uh, how do you diagnose it? So you can do an abdominal x-ray, like we said, and see that double bubble sign. And then uh, upper GI will also show the blind ending duodenum. Perfect. Treatment? Uh, so again, with all of these, resuscitate first and then um, go to the operating room to reconnect um, either to the duodenum if possible or to the jejunum. Uh, perfect. So yeah, duodenum, do out an do autonostomy is, is, is uh, the procedure of choice. Um, important to know that while you're in the OR, uh, these are often associated with other atresias at other portions of the intestinal tract. So you need to be sure that you look for other intestinal atresias. Um, and uh, where, what causes these other atresias and where are they most common? Uh, so they're usually caused by vascular accidents um, in the uterus, and most commonly they're in the jejunum, and they're usually multiple when they're um, due to these vascular accidents. Yeah, so uh, intestinal atresias in the you know more distally are caused by intrauterine vascular accidents. But what what about a cause of, of duodenal atresia? What's the underlying kind of uh, uh, pathology of that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's failure of recanalization uh, during... Yep, uh, that's the buzzword. Yep, so during, that's your embryology. So for duodenal atresia, it's, uh, and this is going way back to, I don't remember, step one, step two, fail, failure not of recanalization. Not know what that means, but that's what the word is. Yeah, yeah failure of recanalization, whereas your distal atresias are due to or intrauterine vascular accidents. I'm not sure if that'll show up, but it's just fun to know. Um, Okay, uh, uh, Kevin, uh, meconium ileus, um, how does that present? So you want to be concerned for this if the um, infant doesn't pass stool within the first 24 hours uh, from being born. Yeah, so no meconium passed in the first 24 hours. How do you diagnose? Um, so you'd get an abdominal x-ray and you'd likely see... Um, you know, a bowel obstruction, dilated small bowel, air fluid levels. And then you'd want to um, confirm your suspicion that the patient might have cystic fibrosis with a sweat chloride test. Sweat chloride test. Perfect. Um, uh, again, as with all these, there's some associated uh, syndromes or associated um, uh, 
conditions, what's associated with meconium ileus? I mean, the the biggest concern by far is cystic fibrosis. And I think about 10% of the patients with cystic fibrosis will present with the meconium ileus. Okay. How do you treat it? So this is actually, uh, you know, most of the time you're able to get these kids open with a gastrograph and enema. Um, and if that doesn't work, you can uh, progress to the mucomus enema or the N-acetylcysteine enema. Um, and then just like everything else, um, if they develop uh, peritonitis, uh, then you have to go to the operating room. Okay. So, you know, when to operate, operate for emergencies, perforation, peritonitis. And also if you need to create an ostomy for anti-grade uh, N-acetylcysteine enemas. Uh, would be another indication. Um, so, Kevin, what's another disease that doesn't pass meconium in the first 24 hours? Yeah, this is a high board probability question is the Hirschsprungs. Um, this would be, you know, your other major concern in a, in a patient not passing meconium. Okay, tell us a little bit about that Hirschsprungs disease. So, uh, it's the number one cause of colonic obstruction in infants. Um, and some patients will present later in life with chronic constipation. It can be kind of more subtle. Um, the more How severe, more, sorry. How does it present? Uh, it it presents in a in a neonate with the same kind of presentation as uh, meconium ileus with no no stool in the first you know twenty four hours, and they have kind of an obstruction. But in the the more subacute versions, they will have kind of chronic constipation. Um, that can be diagnosed later. Okay. And how do you make a diagnosis? So the classic thing here is you need to do a suction rectal biopsy, uh, where this is done at the bedside and, uh, the pathologist look to see if there's ganglion cells in the myenteric plexus. If they're absent, that confirms the diagnosis of Hirschsprungs. Um, and so that's the, the board answer. So how do these uh, these uh, ganglion cells progress through the colon? I've seen this asked. Does it come proximally and go distally? Does it, does it start distally and go proximally? Uh, this is when you're really differentiating the 99th percentile. Uh, but that would be, I, I believe they go from, they go caudad. So they go from proximal to distal. Yeah. So it's failure of progression um, uh, caudally of these, of these cells. Uh, treatment. So you have to resect the aganglionic ganglionic colon. Um, and so you can actually do, you know, suction biopsies in the operating room to help determine. But many times there, you'll be able to see a differentiation in the, the caliber of the colon to help determine how high you have to resect. And then um, you can either make an ostomy or, uh, you know, make a colo-anal anastomosis. And that gets into complicated pediatric surgery there. Okay, perfect. Uh, let's move on. We're getting in the weeds with it, with that stuff. Uh, let's talk about bloody stools um, in a kid. So now we've talked about uh, cause of emesis, bilious, non-bilious. Uh, let's talk about bloody stools. Uh, so, uh, Meg, what's in your differential for bloody stools? Uh, so just remember that the current jelly stools, it's not necessarily bloody stools, but the current jelly stools is intussusception. Um, but then the next big one in a, neo, in a neonate, especially a premature infant, uh, I would think about necrotizing enterocolitis. And then um, in older children, I would think about a Meckel's diverticulum. Perfect. Okay. So that's a good differential for bloody stools. Let's walk it back. We've already talked about intussusception. We all need to talk about that again. Let's move on to the next one. Necrotizing enterocolitis. How does that present? 
So it's usually in that premature baby is in the NICU and um, they started enteral feeding and um, they you get paged about bloody stools. Um, the infant may also have abdominal distension or be septic. Perfect. And how do you make the diagnosis? So you can do plain film x-ray and um, you'll see various things. You can see pneumatosis, um, free air, portal venous gas. Um, and then if you, you should have a high suspicion for neck and at that point you would do serial um, lateral decubitus films to check for perforation. Okay. And, uh, and uh, important to note there, pneumatosis, again, like you said, not indication for surgery alone as well as uh, um, uh that seems a little counterintuitive to adult surgeons, but uh, important to know for necrotized intercolitis. Uh, how do you tr how do you treat these? So these are um, you'd like to manage this by resuscitation. Keep the the baby NPO. Give some broad spectrum antibiotics. Start TPN. Avoid the enteral feeding, um, and then eventually, if you you have a lower concern for perforation, you put an OG tube. Okay. And uh, when do you take these? Uh, when do you operate on these? Uh, so like you said, you don't need to operate if they have pneumatosis, but if they have free air, if they're peritonitic, um, if they're deteriorating, um, a big one is if they have uh, erythema on their abdominal wall. And then um, I, portal venous gas um, is, a, is a poor prognostic indicator, um, but I, I've heard both ways about whether it is an indication for surgery or not. Great. Um, so yeah, these are, can be very, very challenging, um, and often not, uh, not uh, great outcomes, but, uh, let's say that, uh, something I've seen asked before is that you had a patient that had a neck, neck, uh, got taken, um, uh, to the OR ended up with an ostomy or two. Um, and now you're thinking about taking down those ostomies. Um, what do you have to get before you do that? Yeah, so this is the the big mistake that people make is not doing the barium enema prior to taking down those ostomies because um, due to the colitis and infection, they can get all these obstructions. And so to make sure that they don't have stenotic portions, you get the barium enema. Perfect. Yeah, if you reconnect those ostomies, if they have a distal obstruction, you're going to be in a world of hurt when that when that uh, when that baby leaks. Um, okay, let's uh, move on to our next cause of bloody stools, Meckel's diverticulum. Uh, so, John, what's a Meckel's di diverticulum? What causes it? So, it's due to a persistent villein duct or omphalomesenteric duct, I believe, too, is a other name for it. Mm -hmm. How does it present? Uh, so this is your number one cause of, say, a patient, a, a pediatric patient with a GI, painless lower GI bleeding. It's your number one cause of this, uh, and it's usually present on the anti-mesenteric border of the uh, of the small intestine. Okay, there's a, the famous rule of twos, rules of two when it comes to um, the Meckel's diverticulum. What's the rule of twos? Yeah, there's a lot of these twos. So, uh, so it's typically two inches long. Uh, two centimeters in diameter. It presents in kids less than two years old. There's a two to one male to female predominance. It's two feet from the IC valve. Uh, it presents in 2% of the population. 2% are symptomatic. And there's two types of tissues, uh, pancreatic and gastric. Uh, and gastric is obviously the one most symptomatic. Uh, and there's obviously two presentations, diverticula Meckel's diverticulitis and bleeding. Okay, and how do you make uh, how do you diagnose these um, if you don't diagnose it in the operating room? Uh, so your Meckel scan is your best test for this, uh, but the scan will only uh, pick up the gastric mucosa, not the pancreatic mucosa. 
right? So your, your radionuclide Meckel skin is, is what you need to get. Uh, treatment? The treatment for this is the resection of the diverticulum, uh, uh, or you may need to do a, a segmental resection um, if there's significant diverticulitis uh, or it's involving the base of the uh, of the, the diverticulum, or if the, uh, the Meckel's diverticulum is greater than one-third the size of the bowel. Okay, that's a good general rule of thumb. We won't get into the, the minutia of doing a diverticulectomy versus doing a segmental resection. Um, you do have to be sure you get that uh, that um, um, anomalous tissue there that could be causing problems like bleeding, ulceration, that type of thing. Um, Kevin, let's move on to, um, now we're moving out of our bloody stool uh, uh, segment, and we're going to talk about um, some abdominal wall defects. Uh, it shows up a lot on tests. Uh, the differentiating between gastroschisis and omphalocele. Uh, can you walk us through how you remember which is which and what uh, characteristics fall under each category? Yeah, so omphalocele, um, I think of, you think of the O, and uh, I, I use the O of omphalocele as a kind of a completed sac. And then it's also from the belly button. The O looks like a belly button. So it comes from the midline. Um, and um, so the omphalocele is the more severe kind, though you don't have intestine kind of hanging in the breeze. It's covered by the peritoneal lining. Um, it has more significant uh, comorbidities with it. A lot of times there's cardiac and uh, other abnormalities with this. Um, whereas gastroschisis is kind of a little more traumatic in appearance as the bowel is um, kind of desiccated and... Um, not in a peritoneal sac, and this is actually just to the right of the midline. Um, but the associations with this are less severe. Generally, it's just intestinal atresia, occasionally malrotation. Um, and generally, the patients with gastroschisis, gastroschisis do very well uh, once this is uh, fixed. And the ideology of gastroschisis is an in utero rupture of the umbilical vein. Perfect. So like you say, gastroschisis, in your rupture of, a, of uh, umbilical vein, it's to the right of the midline and the intestinal uh, intestine is not covered by the peritoneal sac, whereas omphalocele, failure of embryo, embryonal development, um, uh, does have a sac, is in the midline, the O, like the, uh, like the belly button there, like the umbilicus, uh, as you were saying. Uh, how do you want to, uh, what's the initial, you know, treatment for, for these patients, both gastroschisis and omphalocele? Right. So, it's generally, uh, you're going to use a saline soaked gauze and resuscitate the patients. Um, you can put them either kind of in the silo bag, or a lot of times we will um, just uh, reduce the intestine and, and do kind of an umbilical uh, patch with the uh, cord and uh, the umbilical cord, and then eventually do a primary closure. Yeah, so you cover you cover the bowel with the saline soaked gauze, resuscitate. You know, sometimes you need TPN, NPO, replace the bowel, primary closure, or do those you know those silos uh, to kind of gradually reduce the bowel um, in and do a primary closure. Be sure you address the um, uh, the associated uh, abnormalities uh, as Kevin alluded to, um, and that's pretty much all you're going to see about those two, I believe, on the upside. So let's move on to some more common things: some hernias in kids. Uh, so, Meg, um, uh, umbilical hernia, uh, what causes it? What do you do about it uh, in children? So, umbilical hernias are pretty common in um, children because of a failure of the linea alba to close. Um, so, at birth, it may still be open, um, but they usually do close by the age of three. Um, however, 
if they haven't, um, then you typically like to repair by the time they're five before they enter school. Great. Uh, how about uh, compare that to uh, inguinal hernia? Uh, what causes it? How do you treat those? So inguinal hernias in children are usually due to uh, the persistent processes vaginalis, um, and these actually do need to be repaired. Okay. Uh, how do you how do you repair them? So it's a high ligation of the sac, um, as opposed to adults where we do tissue repairs and mesh repairs. You just need to do a high ligation of the sac in children. Um, and then uh, you usually want to do these repairs within 72 hours of reducing if it's in incarcerated. Okay. What about um, uh, hydrocele in, in infants? Uh, similar, um, but a little bit different. How do you, what, what are some different types of hydrocele and how do you approach those? So hydrocele's are similar in that it is also due to the patent processus vaginalis, but there's no actual hernia sac extending into the internal ring. Um, there's two types. One is communicating, uh, which is usually in the kids who have this waxing and waning bulge um, um, and swelling of their um, scrotum, and then um, non-communicating, uh, which usually resolve on their own because there's no communication, there's no fluid actively entering the hydrocele sac. And treatment? Uh, so this is also um, surgery if it's not resolved um, or if it's a communicating hydrocele, um, and you just resect the hydrocele and then you ligate the processes. Okay. Uh, while we're talking about urologic uh, disorders in children, let's talk about undescended testicles. So, uh, uh, John, uh, what tell us about undescended testicles and how you treat them? Uh, so, undescended testicles uh, usually diagnosed um, with an ultrasound or a physical exam first. Uh, you have to remember that the uh, questions you'll see on this: there's a risk of testicular cancer even after orchopexy, uh, and typically this presents a seminoma. Uh, and you also need to be concerned about a chromosomal disorder if there's undescended testicles bilaterally. And you kind of mentioned it, but treatment? Uh, so the treatment for this is uh, orchopexy, and you can also divide the spermatic vessels um, because there's a, a vas deferens collateral, too, if you need to bring them down. Yeah, so if you need to divide a vessel in order to get length to bring them down to your orchopexy, you can do that for the spermatic vessels because of the collaterals. Uh, good. Um, so, okay, let's move out of this territory and move it into another topic that's pretty high yield, um, but unfortunately there's not a whole lot you need to know about these, but these are abdominal masses in infants. Uh, so uh, we're going to cover three main ones that are the most likely to show up, uh, neuroblastoma, nephroblastoma, and hepatoblastoma. So Kevin, let's start with you. So neuroblastoma, how do they present? So these would generally be asymptomatic. Uh, the patient can have hypertension, diarrhea, raccoon eyes from orbital mets, um, and then you know, less likely it would be an unsteady gait. Okay. Uh, where are they more most commonly neuroblastoma? Where's the most common location in children? Yeah. So they can occur anywhere along the sympathetic chain, but generally it occurs uh, at around the adrenal. Okay. And uh, how about uh, age distribution? So most common, these are in young kids. So you want to remember that neuroblastoma is the young abdominal mass. Um, and, and that if it does happen when they're young, it has the best prognosis. Uh, what's, uh, how do you make the diagnosis uh, if you suspect a neuroblastoma in a child? Um, so you want to look to see if they have, you know, 
almost like a FIO. You want to see if they have elevated catecholamines, metanephrines, VMA. Um, you can start with the abdominal x-ray, but probably would go straight to a CT scan to look um, to evaluate for an abdominal mass. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of things that will sometimes show up that are associated with a high risk or worse prognosis when it comes to neuroblastomas. What are those things? Yeah, it's just one of those annoying questions that you every, every once in a while will see is the high risk worse prognosis is the neuron specific interlace, um, elevated LDH, uh, a diploid tumor or in mic uh, amplification. Right. So those are all associated with worse prognosis. And as Kevin says, it's annoying, but sometimes that stuff gets asked. Um, uh, treatment? So I think resection is the primary uh, mode if it is resectable. Um, if not, you can uh, start with neoadjuvant doxorubicin. Okay. Uh, so resection, resection is, is, is typically the treatment, uh, as Kevin said, uh, neoadjuvant therapy with doxorubicin, um, if it's, uh, if it's unresectable, uh, okay, moving on. So that's neuroblastoma, nephroblastoma, otherwise known as Wilms tumor. So Meg, Wilms tumor, how do they present? Uh, so they're usually, um, asymptomatic, um, but they'll present with this abdominal mass that's uh, growing. They can have hematuria, they can have hypertension, um, and it's usually in children who are uh, in the younger age group. The average age is usually about three years old. Yep. So average age, three years old, uh, like say, uh, can be asymptomatic, hematuria, hypertension. Um, it's important to know that these uh, will frequently metastasize to the bone and lung. Um, and a whole lung XRT can be done for this. Uh, how, so let's say you suspect an, a nephroblastoma, Meg, how do you diagnose? So you do a CT scan similar to the neuroblastoma. Um, the one big thing to differentiate because they can be in the similar areas is that the um, nephroblastoma, it's from the nephrons. And so you're going to have replacement of the renal parenchyma and um, you won't have the displacement that you would see in a neuroblastoma. Excellent. It can be very difficult to distinguish between these two. So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a key distinction. Uh, when we talk about nephroblastoma and Wilms tumor, we often talk about uh, wager uh, syndrome. Uh, what is that? So it's W-A-G-R. The W is for the Wilms. A is for aniridia. G is for GML formations. And the R is for mental retardation. Okay, great. Uh, and treatment? Uh, so you do a nephrectomy, and the big thing is not to upstage the tumor, so you don't want to rupture the tumor. Um, and I think if you uh, uh, rupture, it's like automatically stage three, and um, they require more chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting. Great. Okay. Last one, uh, hepatoblastoma. Uh, uh, John, tell us about hepatoblastoma in children. So it's the most common malignant liver tumor. Uh, usually presents with an increased alpha fetal protein. You may have a kid that has uh, multiple fractures and precocious puberty, uh, and you usually just treat it with uh, resection or um, uh, doxorubicin chemotherapy if it's unresectable. Okay, uh, so let's move on. Let's talk about some common hepatobiliary um, issues uh, in children and. Probably the uh, most common thing that's discussed is cholidocal cysts. Uh, so cholidocal cyst is thought to be caused by reflux of pancreatic enzymes in utero. That's the pathophysiology behind it. There's five types. Most common is type 1, which is fusiform dilation in the common bile tuct. 
Um, and uh, resection, treatment is resection, sometimes required hepatocojejunostomy or even liver transplant. So type one is uh, fusiform di- uh, dilation uh, with combined duct type, type two is, you know, the little outpouching. Type three is a coledocal seal. Uh, type four is both intra and extra hepatic dilation and type five is intrahepatic dilation. And the treatment is going gonna, is gonna to vary depending on what type. Um, the most common type, as we talked about, that you see on the test is the type 1, which is resection, uh, followed by hepaticojejunostomy. Um, if you're dealing with your type 4, type 5, sometimes those require segmental liver resections or liver transplantation. Um, and, and the overall goal of this is uh, why you operate is to reduce the chance of malignancy down the road. So that's that's pretty much covers what you need to know about cholidocal cyst uh, for the app site. Um, uh, Moving on, uh, another biliary pathology, let's talk about biliary atresia. So, uh, Kevin, uh, biliary atresia in children, um, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's the most common indication for liver transplant. Um, These children will generally present with neonatal jaundice, uh, and this is, uh, that will persist um, after two weeks. And the way you diagnose this is with a liver biopsy, um, and you're looking for periportal fibrosis, bile plugs, uh, cirrhosis, and you also need some cholangiography to help confirm. Okay, and what treatment? Treatment is uh, the Kasai procedure, which is the hepatico-porto-jejunostomy. You're basically draining their biliary system with an anastomosis of the jejunum to the the bile ducts, like the intrahepatic bile ducts. if it's too progressed, uh, then you have to transplant. Great. Uh, and so a good general rule there is a, a third of people improve, a third progress transplant, and a third die. So that's your third rule for biliary atresia uh, in uh, infants. Uh, okay, moving on. We're almost done. We're in the home stretch of uh, pediatrics for the outside. Let's move on to thoracic. Uh, something that will show up and uh, oftentimes you won't have a lot of exposure to um, in your training is congenital lung disease. Uh, so, uh, Meg, what are the different types of congenital lung disease uh, that we have to worry about in kids? Yeah, so there's uh, a few types. The big ones are the pulmonary sequestrations, um, which are just lung tissue that does not actually communicate. It's sequestered from the tracheobronchial tree, has its own blood supply, usually from the aorta. Um and uh, venous drainage can be systemic or it can be pulmonary. And these so usually... Talk a little bit more about that because that shows up and it often confuses people where we talk about the extra low bar sequestration versus the intra low bar. How do you distinguish between those two? All right. So um, extra low bar would have um, systemic venous drainage, whereas intra low bar has pulmonary venous drainage. Um, So again, if you think about it, so it's sequestered, so it's getting vascular supply, um, extra pulmonary from the aorta directly. And then um, if it's uh, also extra low bar, then it's um, draining systemically. But if it's intra low bar, it's draining into the pulmonary veins. Okay, great. Uh, And how how does that present? They usually present with infection or an abdominal chest x-ray. These can also be diagnosed um, in utero these days. Okay. And how do you treat them? Uh, So you ligate the arterial supply and then you do a lobectomy. Great. Uh, Ligate arterial supply, lobectomy. So just kind of remember that extra intralobar is based on the the, the venous drainage um, because that can trip some people up. Okay. Uh, John, uh, let's talk about uh, congenital cystic adenoid malformation. Uh, what is that and what's the treatment? Yeah, so CCAM, so the difference between these and pulmonary sequestration is that it communicates directly with the tracheobronchial tree. 
uh, and but they're treated very similar with a lobectomy. Yep, so that's a key distinction: communication with the tracheobronchial tree for CKMs versus pulmonary sequestration. You know, again, a lot of these things trip people up, so it's just it's just important to kind of go through them and understand the differences because that's what the that's going to be the heart of the question. Uh, Kevin, congenital lobar emphysema. Uh, what is that? How does it present? How do you treat it? Uh, so these can be quite concerning. Um, if you get consulted on one of these in the NICU, um, it looks like a uh, basically it's like a tension pneumothorax on a, a chest X-ray in, a, in an infant with uh, you know difficulty breathing. Uh, this is due to the failure of cartilage development uh, in the lung. Okay, and as you said, it presents similar to a tension pneumothorax. What's the treatment, and what most importantly, what's not the treatment? Exactly. What is not the treatment is to be the the night float guy who puts a chest tube into it. You you need to do a lobectomy on these patients. Correct. So if you see an infant with this, you know, what looks like a tension pneumothorax on an X-ray, I uh, got to be concerned about congenital lobar emphysema and do not. The answer is not chest tube. Uh, okay. And finally, wrapping up our our congenital lung disease, Meg bronchogenic cyst. Um, what, uh, what are they? How do they present? How do you treat them? So these are, um, another extra pulmonary cyst. They're of the bronchial tissue and cartilage. Um, they usually present as a mediastinal mass and, um, in the operating room, they can have some milky liquid in them and you treat them with resection. Yeah. So it's kind of easy. All the congenital lung disease, you resect it is the, is the treatment for most of these. So it's easy to remember. Uh, okay. Uh, to wrap up thoracic, uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, uh, a couple different types, John, uh, tell us what those are. So you have two types, your boctolic and your morgagni hernias. Uh, the boctolic is the most common one. It's usually posterior and the morgagni is the more of the rare of the two and is presented, uh, anteriorly. I don't really have a great way of remembering that, but I usually think of Morgagni more anterior is the best way to remember it. Uh, Bakhtalek is back and to the left. Oh, yeah. That works, too. Okay. Uh, so most common left-sided, uh, liver protects on the right, um, and usually uh, both lungs are dysfunctional when you have these congenital diaphragmatic hernia. What are some different uh, associations with having a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, John? Yeah, so your association would be severe pulmonary hypertension, which kind of goes along with the both lungs are dysfunctional. Uh, you can also have cardiac and neural tube defects, and uh, they're also, uh, like I mentioned, there's a 20% uh, association with uh, malrotation earlier. Okay, and most of these are these days diagnosed prenatal on prenatal ultrasound, um, or you know it, it, you can see, uh, get a chest X-ray, um, you know, uh, in a in an infant and see bowel in the chest. Uh, treatment, uh, Kevin. The treatment for these is uh, ventilation. Uh, you, you know, the, the primary concern here is uh, obviously oxygenating them. Um, so you can use inhaled nitric oxide. Some of these kids actually will require ECMO. Um, and once they're stabilized, you take them to the operating room and, and repair the defect. Yeah, it's actually, you know, it's not so much the the, the, the diaphragmatic hernia itself that's causing the problem. It's that severe pulmonary hypertension. So ventilation is definitely the big issue uh, with, with treatment of these. Um, okay, let's move away from thorax. Let's move up into the neck. There's some uh, just a very short few things you need to know. Um, we'll talk about the different, you know, brachial cyst, thyroglossal duct cyst, and cystic uh, hygromas, which are uh, pretty much the only things I've seen asked about the neck in a kid. Um, so, uh, Meg, uh, brachial cleft cyst. Um, uh, 
where do these come from um, and uh, what's the, how do they present? What's the treatment? Um, so these are, uh, there's multiple different types based on the embryologic origin of these bronchi bronchial clefts. Um, but most commonly, there's a second bronchial cleft cyst, which is um, in the middle of the anterior SEM. Um, so each of these kind of travel along the sternocleidomastoid, um, and the treatment for them is uh, resection. And so I think the big thing in question stems is always when they talk about um, the assist in the lateral portion of the neck. So again, the sternocleidomastoid versus the thyroglossal cysts that are um, midline. Uh, so John, moving on, uh, thyroglossal uh, duct cysts. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about those, how they're formed and what the treatment is. Yeah, so these are like Meg already mentioned, they're midline. Uh, they typically go through the hyoid bone. Um, they're formed due to abnormal descent to the thyroid gland, uh, but also maybe the patient's only thyroid tissue as well as when it, it, it tracks down from the kind of posterior tongue. Uh, the treatment for this is the cyst trunk procedure, which is the decision of the cyst of the track, and then if the highway bone is, is significantly involved, you may also need to resect that as well. Great. And lastly, uh, Kevin, cystic hygroma, how does it present? What is it? Uh, how do you treat it? So this is the lateral neck that's in the posterior triangle. So, you know, behind the sternocleidomastoid, this would be a soft cystic multiloculated. Um, they get kind of recurrent infections. Um, it's lymphatic malformation connecting sometimes to the internal jugular. Uh, the treatment for these is eventually to resect them. Okay. Uh, okay, so that does it. That's that's pediatric surgery for the absite. Um, uh, we're going to do some quick hits here real quick, and, and then we'll be done. So let's go through these real quick. So, uh, Meg, uh, quick hit number one, which immunoglobin crosses the placenta? IgG. IgG crosses the placenta, right. John, which immunoglobin is transferred through uh, breast milk? IgA. IgA, okay. Uh, most commons. Okay, so our most common uh, ma malignancy uh, in kids, Kevin. Uh, leukemia, specifically ALL. Okay. Most common solid tumor, Meg? They are uh, CNS tumors. Okay. Uh, John, most common abdominal tumor? Your neuroblastomas. Your neuroblastomas, right. Uh, Kevin, uh, most common lung tumor? Carcinoid. Carcinoid tumor is the most common lung tumor in children. Uh, Meg, most common tumor of uh, the pediatric larynx? Uh, is it's the laryngeal papillomatosis and this is a tumor that actually involutes after puberty interesting okay john you have a one month old with an elevated afp and beta hcg uh what's the diagnosis uh so it's sacrococcygeal teratoma and uh and there's usually malignant at this age uh nope usually malignant after two months old oh sorry so malignant after two months old. So uh, elevated AFP, beta HCG, sacrococcygeal teratoma after two months, usually malignant. Clearly. Uh, uh, of course. Kevin, <laughs> most common anterior mediastinal mass? Teratoma. Your terrible teratoma. Okay. Uh, Meg, most common over, overall mediastinal mass? Uh, these are the neurogenic tumors, which are usually in the posterior mediastinum. Correct. John, you have an infant with rest, with uh, intermittent respiratory distress and poor uh, suckling. What are you thinking? So yeah, I think a quinoatresia, uh, uh, and it will likely need, it will most likely need surgical correction. Yep, surgical correction. 
Uh, Kevin, most common airway obstruction in infants? Uh, laryngeomalacia. Okay, and what is that? Uh, it's like when the larynx isn't fully formed and it's kind of um, floppy, for lack of better words. This will go away as the epiglottic cartilage matures. Perfect. Uh, Meg, a uh, two-year-old continues to have wheezing and recurrent infection. The tracheal rings are elliptical on bronchoscopy. So that's the buzzword for tracheomalacia. And you usually treat it with aortopexy, um, so that opens up the trachea. Great. Uh, John, six-month-old with red lesion growing on face and scalp. Yeah, these are usually hemangiomas, and most of them resolve by the year um, eight when they're by their eight years old. Otherwise, if they persist or relatively large, you can use uh, steroids or laser treatment. Okay. And Kevin, uh, last quick hit, a 13-year-old boy who has a large uh, sunken area of the chest. What's the diagnosis? What's the treatment? This is uh, pectus excavatum. You can treat this with a nuss bar. Um, and then the pectus carnitatum. Carnitatum. <laughs> Pectus carnitum. Carnitum. How, how do you say it? Carnitum. Carnitum. Well, John, you can't say intestine, right? So. Uh, That's true. <laughs> uh, so, Meg, you just do pect. You do that one. I can't say. <laughs> and now I'm like confused. Uh, so, and then there's also pectus carinatum, which is the pigeon chest, and you don't actually repair this. You can just do chest braces. Perfect. Okay, that does it for our quick hits. That does it for our pediatric absite review. Thanks, everybody, for listening uh, to Behind the Knife's absite review. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.